Welcome to the Progression Health podcast, episode four. I'm here with Dan Feldman, and Dan is just going to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about uh, his background. Yeah, thanks, man. So yeah, my name is uh, Dan Feldman, as you said. Uh, I am a registered dietitian uh, here in the United States. Uh, I also have my master's degree in human nutrition, I'm also a certified personal trainer through uh, NASM. Uh, I currently uh, actually wear a few different hats. So I do some online nutrition and training uh, uh, coaching through a, a really great company called Macros Inc. Um, I additionally do some uh, uh, research with an, an, another really great company called examine.com, which, which a lot of you guys might have heard of. Uh, and then I also own my own uh, private practice where I see um, uh, clients for, for mainly for nutrition, but for some training as well. Um, you know, all of that's online. Uh, a lot of them actually use their health insurance. You know, I've been lucky, lucky enough to, to uh, you know, network with a bunch of insurance companies here in the United States so I can uh, um, get people what they need, get them the nutrition services, dietitian services that they need, and, uh, you know, they can have it covered under their health insurance. So, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Oh, and then I'm also a competitive powerlifter. Uh, uh, you know, Ross and I met over Instagram. So my, my uh, handle there is powerlifter dietitian. So uh, I compete in USAPL, um, yeah, generally in the, the 74 kilogram class. I weigh like, you know, 157, 160 pounds and, and um, um, moderately decent at that in that weight class. So, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that I do, a lot of the content that I produce is, is around, you know, training and, and, and powerlifting and, and uh, for powerlifters, as well as just, you know, fat loss and, and sort of more general health. So, um, yeah, just a little bit about me. A little bit being an understatement. Yeah. So that's where <laughs> our interest kind of crossed, where I have a big interest. My background's exercise, but my interest is a lot in nutrition. And then I've done powerlifting as well myself. So your content is right. You know, it's, I almost feel like you're speaking to me sometimes. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's very very useful and uh, powerlifting dietitian. I'd recommend checking his stuff out on Instagram. Um, so then, your 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 background as a dietitian, like what did you specialize in, um, in terms of like your kind of your studies, and then you know like what type of clients do you work with now? Like who's your kind of ideal client? Yeah. So as far as my studies, I mean the 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 I know we were talking about it, but this off air the the uh, process to becoming a registered dietitian registered dietitian in the United States, you don't necessarily have to specialize in anything particular. You get a, a, a pretty well-rounded program of, of you know, um, you know, where we do a little bit of like the, the sports nutrition and, and, and uh, counseling and stuff like that, but then a lot of focus on nutrition for various disease states, um, as well as stuff that, that uh, you know, would probably be not particularly relevant for, for your listeners So things like food service. So like when you go into a uh, a food establishment, you know, um, you know, they have dietitians to make sure that, that the food is prepared appropriately to, to prevent food foreign illness. So, and then just a lot of really random things like that. But, um, so, so, I mean, the, the, um, path of becoming a dietitian was, was a little bit more general, uh, although my master's degree actually focused, uh, really on, uh, you know, learning how to read and interpret nutrition literature, uh, and being able to kind of, uh, uh, disseminate that to, towards a little bit more of a, a lay population. So, you know, when we see a headline uh, in a lay publication, you know, being able to sort of um, see the study that went behind that and being able to, to analyze the study, being able, being able to see like, right, uh, is the headline really representative of the actual study? You know, we did a lot of stuff like that, and, um, you know, learning this kind of statistics behind uh, research. So, so, you know, I can um, actually uh, interpret it, right? Because I know a lot of us might, might, might come across some peer reviewed literature and, and it's very, very dense and very difficult to read. So, um, a lot of what I've done is kind of focused on, you know, being able to, um, you know, come up with, with the, the kind of, uh, practical applications from, uh, nutrition literature. Now me specifically, obviously I'm a power lifter. So my personal interest uh, does sort of skew towards um, more uh, strength and physique uh, goals. So, so things like fat loss, appetite regulation, 
uh, usually nutrition for gaining muscle and strength and things like that are a little bit more up my alley. But, um, uh, you know, at the same time, my research interests are relatively broad. So, so, you know, as I mentioned, I do some research for examine and we've got, uh, specifically I work on, on, uh, um, a part of the website called study summaries, where we, uh, review probably around 200, uh, peer reviewed studies per month and, and create summaries, uh, for, for, to kind of just sort of give you what you need from each study. Um, and that really encompasses a pretty wide variety of topics. So beyond that muscle gain or fat loss, there's also studies on cannabis, right? I've been reading a lot about cannabis lately. Um, you know, allergies and immunity, depression, healthy aging, uh, really pretty wide uh, uh, variety of things. So I've got my, I've got my, Kind of my personal interest with, with the powerlifting, muscle gain, fat loss, but at the same time, um, also digesting and absorbing a lot of uh, research about a lot of other stuff as well. So, uh, yeah. Very good. Yeah. So I have probably read some of your work very recently because I see I get, I'm subscribed to Examine. So for anyone who doesn't know, Examine is like a site that you correct me here if I'm wrong, but basically it gets the, the research that comes out very regularly and then explains it in kind of layman's terms for someone who's not maybe like qualified or someone who is trying to become more qualified in terms of learning about nutrition. So it's like, it's basically like the best hub for nutrition information around that I've come across. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And even if you are an expert, even if you do are very proficient with reading research, still like so much new research comes out it's impossible to read that much unless it's like literally all that you do it's, it's impossible you know 200 studies per month unless it's like your full-time job it's going to be very difficult for you to uh, read and sort of uh, absorb 200 studies per month right so, so um with with this right <clears throat> at least with the with, with this part of the membership of the examine membership, right? You can choose what topics you're interested in. Maybe it's cannabis, maybe it's fat loss, maybe it's depression, maybe it's women's health, whatever it is, you choose your categories and then you get, um, you know, uh, every month you get uh, study summaries for those categories. So it really, really saves time, especially if you are a relatively busy health professional, even if you are really proficient with reading research. Um, you know, when you can trust that experts are creating these summaries, reading through the studies and, and creating summaries that are accurate reflections of what's actually in the research, right? Because again, we all know we, we see headlines and, and lay media or even, you know, well-intentioned health practitioners and dietitians, doctors, whatever, and, and they don't actually accurately reflect what the research said, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Someone, you know, they have a bias or they're in a certain camp and then it's like, you know, it's just confirmation bias the whole time. Like they're just looking for the, the research, you know, 200 studies come out a month, you know, at least one of them is going to have a favorable result uh, for their bias or, you know, disprove something else that they don't believe in. And yeah, it's very easy to cherry pick data. <clears throat> um, so then based on how like well read you are, <clears throat> do you work with more advanced clients or like the ideal person that you would work with? I mean, I work with a, a pretty decent variety. I would say most of my clients are either looking to lose fat or potentially build muscular strength. Um, you know, I work with a fair number of, of more sort of general population folks who are just looking to get to a little bit better shape or lose some weight, stuff like that. Um, I also have worked with, with uh, you know, individuals who are more advanced strength athletes. I've worked with a um, actually national level power lifter relatively recently on his nutrition. I've worked with dietitians before, so um you know it's 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 pretty well varied but but you know at the same time i do have my niche yeah very good and um, i don't know if you know much about like combat sports but like you know the ufc mma and uh boxing um have you done more work with that recently because i, I feel like if i had to pick one sport that's on the rise i would say that sport is um but then there's a huge potential for nutrition because i think uh combat sport athletes typically were like really of the no pain no gain mentality and they kind of didn't focus on like the small details. So there's a huge uh, area for potential there. Have you worked with any athletes from, from those kind of sports? It's funny you ask that because literally yesterday, someone else was like, uh, reached out to me on Instagram. It's like, oh, are you working with combat sport athletes right now? Um, I, 
have not worked with any uh, currently, but but yeah, there's definitely a need for those athletes uh, to see a, a dietitian or at least a very uh, a coach who's really in the know when it comes to nutrition. Because obviously, those those athletes do uh, typically have pretty aggressive uh, weight cutting protocols uh, and, and potentially uh, dehydration protocols. So making sure that you're cutting weight, if you are a combat athlete, making sure that you're cutting weight in a way that does not sacrifice performance or health. Uh, is really quite important. Yeah, absolutely. Like there's, there's the, the fundamentals that uh, apply to nutrition. And, you know, even though sports vary, the fundamentals don't really change that much. So if someone is trying to cut weight, they're essentially getting into a fat loss phase. And uh, the only variables that would change would be, you know, how severe and then the time length that the person had available to them. So, um, you know, if I was a combat sport athlete, I would have absolutely no hesitation uh, in going to you because you have so much knowledge with nutrition so that's that's great um so you talk a lot about like myths and nutrition we talked a little bit about sugar and sugar addiction and stuff like that what do you think you know as someone who knows the research what do you think are some of the biggest like misconceptions or myths that are out there like really pervasive in, in nutrition yeah so there's a bunch of them i mean off the top of my head something i've posted about like 20 times on my instagram is is artificial sweeteners uh, I mean, you can right now Google, you know, at, so aspartame, right? That's the, that's the most vilified artificial sweetener. Just, just to be clear, they do cause cancer and, you know, they're going to, they're going to kill us all eventually, right? That's, that's what's going to happen. So, so, so not exactly. So, so um, yeah, if you, it, I mean, most of us have probably heard stuff about aspartame, which is again, just the artificial sweet sweetener that's in, um, uh, equal like the equal packets if you get those sort of zero calorie packets and some diet coke and stuff like that you know go to dr google and you'll see oh aspartame causes cancer it causes weight gain it causes uh uh ms it causes uh alzheimer's it causes all this stuff and you'll even see um health practitioners doctors dietitians saying that it causes all of these bad things but the research in humans looking at realistic doses of it show that that's just not the case. It does not cause any of those things. Uh, it's not even associated with any of those things. Um, people who use artificial sweeteners, uh, such as aspartame, uh, instead of sugar, lose more weight and maintain that weight. Um, you know, uh, so it has a, a neutral to positive effect in that way. And even if you look at, again, I'm just focusing on aspartame. If you look at the actual components of aspartame, it's got, um, uh, it, it basically is composed of phenylalanine, aspartic acid, and uh, is it methanol or ethanol. But basically, I think it's uh, ethanol, is it? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, uh, aspartame it basically breaks down into phenylalanine, aspartic acid, and methanol in the body, right? Yeah. Um, phenylalanine aspartic acid or just amino acids that are found in way greater concentrations, way, way greater quantities in um, foods, protein, foods that have protein in them, chicken, eggs, milk, uh, soy, just, just like, you know, you get way greater concentrations of phenylalanine and aspartic acid in everyday foods uh, than you would for aspartame. Um, and then methanol, you know, while large amounts of methanol is, is bad, uh, you actually get uh, uh, larger quantities of methanol in foods like bananas and, and tomatoes uh, than you would from aspartame. So even on a mechanistic level, it doesn't really make sense that aspartame would cause any sort of negative, uh, significant uh, negative effect on health. Um, you know, and, and again, when we look at actually, uh, you know, studies that use that that, that we're, we're humans actually use aspartame we don't see any of these negative effects now you could look at some rodent research where they give them just monumentally huge amounts of aspartame and weird things happen uh but but that is you know that's just not generalizable to, to humans um you know and then something else also sort of on that same Wavelength is people talk about the gut microbiome being negatively affected by um, artificial sweeteners. Uh, generally speaking, they, they refer to 
I don't remember the author's name, but there's one paper in particular, which uh, mainly looked at um, the artificial sweetener that's in sweet and low, uh, which is not aspartame. Um, you need to pull that up uh, really quick. Um, but basically they looked at that one and they found saccharin. So, so they, uh, well, they looked at a few, they looked at aspartame and sucralose and saccharin, but it was really saccharin that in rodents uh, had some, some weird effects on, on the gut microbiome, um, or not even weird effects, it just caused changes in the gut microbiome. And I believe if I'm remembering correctly that they, that they did a, a, a move to, they did a, a um, they did this thing where they basically take the stool sample from, the rodents and they transplanted them in humans, or maybe it was vice versa. And then they also found some alterations in the other species. Um, I would need to have the, the study in front of me to really look at it. But basically, uh, you know, so people use that as evidence that artificial sweeteners cause dysbiosis in the gut microbiome, right? Um, and for, for one thing, for the most of those results really looked at saccharin, which is a completely different artificial sweetener with a completely different chemical structure that's actually less common than aspartame or the one that's in Splenda called sucralose, um, you know, and does not have the same safety profile. Um, you know, and like minor perturbations in the gut microbiome are not necessarily a negative thing. So um, I'm getting really into the weeds, so I'm gonna kind of stop myself there, but basically, Long story short is that is that you know if you use art stuff with artificial sweeteners in it in in normal quantities, uh, fine. <laughs> yeah, good, good to hear it from someone um, like an expert such as yourself to get that you know the record straight on that. So then, you know, we know uh, obesity is on the rise and uh, type two diabetes and, and lots of chronic health conditions are on the rise. Would using artificial sweeteners because you said that uh, it actually helps weight loss would you say that artificial sweeteners is actually healthier than using things like sugar or honey um even though you know in the media it gets a really bad reputation you know kind of like uh when you really think about it because there is no calories but it still has the same sweetness do you think it'll actually be a better option uh over the lifespan so i'm going to give you a really cop-out answer and that is it depends right a lot of people like to look at very specific foods and say, is this better than that? But it obviously depends, right? Sugar, sweetened beverage, fruit juice, you know, or even, even soda or, or whatever it is, um, you know, can have its place in, in the diet, right? Um, you know, for example, if someone is looking to, uh, is not looking to lose weight, you know, fruit juices, you know, can be a good way for someone to get in, you know, some B vitamins and whatnot. And maybe they just like having some juice, um, you know, if they're not worried about losing weight and they can kind of fit that into their, their carbohydrate allotment, calorie allotment for the day, it might not be an issue. And, you know, soda isn't really going to provide any nutritional value, but, you know, and it, it's not something to have, that you should be drinking tons and tons and tons of, but having it occasionally, if you're not, you know, and assuming the overall, your overall diet is, is, is relatively healthful, you know, it's just going to add some carbohydrates and calories, um, you know, and as long as you keep it in moderation, it's fine. Um, now, if someone is specifically looking to lose body fat, um, uh, you know, substituting sugar-sweetened beverages or caloric beverages, whether that be soda, whether that be fruit juice, uh, stuff like that, um, with an artificial, artificially sweetened, you know, uh, low-calorie or calorie-free beverage is a very sensible choice because we know that that um, liquid calories are not particularly satiating compared to eating your calories. Uh, so swapping, a, swapping a, a Coke for a diet Coke uh, is a really nice way to cut down your calories uh, without affecting satiation in any way. Uh, and similar thing, you know, if you wanted to use, you know, instead of fruit juice, you wanted to use, you know, I use the, uh, if you ever see the Neofit waters where you just kind of put the drops in your water and it, and it flavors it or crystal light or things like that. I think those can be really good, good options in those cases. They're not going to cause, you know, any, they're not gonna increase your risk of cancer. They're not gonna increase your risk of any sort of terrible disease. Uh, they are gonna have minimal impact on blood sugar. Um, 
yeah, and if anything, they'll help with weight loss and fat loss. So a uh, little bit of a more lengthy answer, but but depending on, on the context, yes, it, it can be helpful to make those substitutions. Great, yeah. Uh, just funny related story on the, the Mio uh, sugar kind of uh, substitute for drink. So a friend of mine is doing a cut right now, and he actually was like really trying to manage his calories and he was drinking the Mio's and he ended up getting like heartburn because he was having too much of the Mio. He didn't know that was like a potential side effect. So you can do, you can't overdo these things. You know, they're not without like the limitations, but it's, it's when you go into excessive quantities of anything, you're going to run into problems. So yeah, that was yeah. a good answer. Yeah, absolutely. And if it's, and like, just like with anything, if you, I mean, yeah, if you overconsume anything, you know, like if you eat too many apples, you're, you're going to have some gastrointestinal issues. You know what I mean? So that's just being sort of sensible with it. And people, people act like, you know, you know, they, they, they're, they're like, oh, if, if, if uh, I have, you know, like, what if I eat, like, what if I drink 25 cans of Diet Coke? Well, you know, don't drink 25 cans of Diet Coke today. Like, that's weird. Don't, you know, and, and weird eating patterns are generally not ideal. Uh, but again, keep it in a, as long as you're eating a sensible amount of it, not a crazy amount of, of, of this stuff, it's nothing to worry about. Yeah. Yeah. Moderation is like the hardest skill to learn, but I think it's one of the most important. Um, yeah. So speaking of moderation and then excessive doses, uh, is food addictive and is sugar addictive? Any kind of thoughts on that? And, you know, sugar is demonized a lot as well. Should we, should we like be, a, you know, kind of wary of our sugar intake because of the link with type two diabetes? So there's a couple of things there. I'll hit on the addictive part second. Um, sugar Sugar in it of itself is not harmful. You know, people sort of, people don't realize that, that the carbohydrates that you eat for the most part in your diet, like all of those break down to sugar. You know, all of those break down to blood glucose. Are they, are they well, they, you know, all of the carbohydrates that you eat ultimately are going to be broken down to, to glucose or fructose or uh, the lactose. Um, and then the, the, the fructose and galactose are eventually going to make their way into the similar pathways, uh, the, the similar glycolytic path, pathway, pathway. It'll, it'll enter, at least, at least the uh, fructose will enter in a little bit more of a roundabout way into the glycolytic pathway. Uh, but, but all of them ultimately enter in a similar pathway to eventually, you know, uh, be used by your body as ATP energy, right? Um, so, so whether you're getting sugar from an apple or a carrot or Twizzlers, on a very strictly a molecular level, you're ultimately just still going to be entering the, the same pathway. Now, obviously, am I saying that, that having a bunch of sugar, having sugar from, from carrots is the same as getting sugar from Twizzlers? No, of course not, right? The sugar in Twizzlers is much more concentrated it's what way more easy. It's it's a lot easier to eat a um, hundred grams of sugar from Twizzlers. Very easy to do that as opposed to a hundred grams of sugar from carrots. You'd have to eat a shit ton of carrots to get a hundred grams of sugar, right? Uh, and you're probably not going to do that. Uh, and because of the fiber that's in the carrots, uh, um, uh, basically the rise in blood sugar that you would get from from the the sugar and carrots would be a lot more of a gradual rise generally speaking whereas the twizzlers because it's a just pure carbohydrate no no fiber no fat uh you're going to have a more rapid uh increase and then potential and then uh rapid decline like a spike and then decline in, in blood sugar so um you know again on a molecular level sugar is not inherently bad it's just it, it, there are some sources of it where it's a lot easier to eat really large quantities of it and eating large quantities of sugar, you know, um, is generally not ideal, you know, uh, foods that are generally very dense in sugar are very easy to overeat and very easy to eat in a calorie surplus. Um, you know, and then that, that kind of being eating in a calorie surplus and, and sort of constant highs and lows of blood sugars is not ideal. And, and that with, with gains in body fat that will occur when you're eating a lot and sugar, what we think of as quote unquote sugary foods lend themselves to eating in a calorie surplus leads to fat gain. And then that can lead to those, those health problems. But sugar in itself is not 
inherently harmful. Our body just uses it to make glucose or fructose or galactose in those intersimilar pathways. It just comes down to the amount of it that we're having. Um, now, as far as addiction, food addiction, uh, it's a pretty nuanced topic. It's something that even among researchers is pretty, uh, is, is very widely debated. And to be honest, it's not something that I've looked to enough to really say, yes, addiction, addiction is definitely a thing, or no, it's definitely not, or yes, sugar is definitely addictive or not. Um, what I will tell you, and I did, I made a post on this a while back, uh, basically I was just reviewing a 2016 uh, systematic review. Uh, and basically what they said is most of the direct evidence that's linking sugar and, and, and to addictive like behaviors has really been in animals. There's some, um, you know, you know, there, there, there are, there's evidence that there's potentially some effects of, 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 of sugar that mirror uh, the effects of addictive drugs, you know, in the brain, um, you know, but, but, the, but these, it, it's still under a lot of debate and, and whether that actually has an effect in humans is unclear, um, you know, food addiction, you know, we, we do have something called the Yale Food Addiction Scale, um, you know, which, which does operationalize food addiction and uh, criteria for that are, you know, uh, persistent eating uh, despite negative consequences, constant desire for food, uh, unsuccessful attempts to cut down on sugar, and then uh, impaired functioning due to overeating. Um, but uh, there, there's still a lot of debate there because some of the inclusion criteria for that do, do, do overlap with other things like binge eating disorder. Uh, so it's possible that when we're looking at food addiction using that criteria I just mentioned, we actually might be indirectly measuring another syndrome like a, a binge eating disorder or something like that. So um, again, like, uh, you know, I uh, don't really know for sure. Um, I can see if I have that yet. Yeah. And then that uh, systematic review was by Margaret et al, 2016, called Sugar Addiction in the State of Science. So that's pretty much what I have to say there. Uh, short answer is I don't know. Uh, maybe it has some addictive qualities. Uh, is it addictive as like heroin? No. Uh, so those are my thoughts. Yeah, very good. So uh, tying it back to the sugar point, I think. You should only really worry or be concerned about your sugar intake if you're, you know, pre-diabetic or you have type two diabetes. I think that's pretty much a good approach. And then uh, it's a lot more nuanced than just sugar is bad, kind of like you said. So there's like obviously carrots have sugar, and so does like Twizzlers. So you need to take your your source of sugar in. Um, and then the addiction. I really like the uh, definition of addiction. It's like uh, continued use despite adverse consequences. So it's like. Um, we, we like food is a basic need. So like to eat, you know, there's completely nothing wrong with eating, but like if you're eating past the point of fullness, you know, maybe it's an eating disorder. It's not necessarily an addiction. So it's kind of like a gray area by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, so then. I did have one point. I actually wanted to just, just uh, pop in there really quick uh, for individuals that have uh, type two diabetes or are, are sort of on the borderline there. Rather than focusing on sugar, I would recommend focusing on total carbohydrates, uh, just carbohydrate intake in general. Obviously, uh, if you are if you have over if you are overweight or you have obesity and you have type two diabetes, um, losing body fat will likely improve insulin sensitivity. Uh, then also, just in general, monitoring your total carbohydrate intake, not just sugar, uh, is, is really going to be where you'd want to place your focus to make sure that you are managing your blood sugar levels. So, just wanted to, to hop in there real quick. Yeah, very good. And then just another question I think of is for type one diabetics, would you have a different approach? Would you say they focus on sugar as opposed to total carbohydrate intake or is it the same? Yeah, so I'll be honest, type one diabetes, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit less familiar with, with sort of specific specifics regarding how to approach nutrition for type one diabetes. I mean, obviously managing your blood sugar levels is really going to be critical to make sure you don't have any really high highs or low lows. Um, I mean, again, it's it's not like it's going to be different with regards to sugar versus carbohydrate. It would still go down, come down to total carbohydrate, but I'm really not an expert on type one diabetes. So I, I, I don't really want to kind of give any potential recommendations further because it, 
be wrong. But those are my thoughts. Yeah, prudent approach there. I like that. Um, and then intermittent fasting is very popular recently. Do you have like any thoughts on that in terms of like who it could be useful for and then people who should avoid it? Yeah, it's funny. I've actually been implementing a, a time-restricted eating, so a form of intermittent fasting as I'm sort of cutting at the moment. But um, yeah, so a couple of things. First off, if you actually go into the literature, technically intermittent fasting uh, is often used to, to refer to something called alternate day fasting, where people, maybe they eat very, very, very low calories one or two days per week, and then eat normally the rest of the week. Um, you know, I think that what, what you're most likely referring to and what will be most likely more relevant to your listeners is time-restricted eating, where each day you eat within a specific time window. Maybe it's eight hours, 12 p.m. to 8 p.m., right? Um, so first off, with the, with the alternate day fasting, that is more so relevant for people who have, have obesity or have morbid obesity, who have a lot of weight to lose, because for them, and, and again, still, you, you should do this while working with a practitioner, but, but uh, for them, they have a lot of stored energy. So they have a lot of stored energy to utilize on those really low, low calorie days. Uh, it's not something I would recommend if you're not very, very overweight, uh, the alternate day fasting. Uh, the time-restricted eating can be very, very beneficial because it, it can really help control hunger levels. Um, you know, if you're eating just within an eight-hour window, it's a lot easier to eat in a calorie deficit. Uh, and you'll find that after you maybe an initial adjustment period, uh, your hunger signals tend to, to, to mirror your, your habits, your, your sort of when you typically eat. So if you typically eat your first meal at 12 p.m., maybe after an adjustment period, you're... you're you'll find that you won't really be hungry in the morning, generally speaking, and your hunger will generally rise when your body, quote unquote, expects food. Uh, so, so, so keeping your eating window to an eight hour or whatever it is, uh, if you are looking to lose body fat, it can be <clears throat> a nice way to make eating in a calorie deficit easier. Um, you know, some people talk about something called autophagy and say, oh, that, 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 that time-restricted eating has all these other metabolic benefits because it's autophagy, your, your cells regenerating and all this stuff. And uh, generally speaking, those benefits are more so from much longer fasts uh, than, than just, you know, uh, time-restricted eating. Uh, it, it is possible that uh, potentially limiting your, your food intake to the day and not eating at night it, 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 uh, might have some benefits with regard to insulin sensitivity and, and triglycerides and stuff. Um, um, if any of your listeners are familiar with Danny Lennon's work, he's, he's done a lot of work on that, but, um, generally speaking, it, it is more so it time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting, you know, it is, is a, a really nice, uh, way, a nice way to make fat loss a little bit easier by making adhering to a calorie deficit a little bit easier. Yeah. The way I like to think of, uh, time-restricted feeding, I should have framed it that way is that Nutrition is very complicated. So if you have a set time window, it gets away from all the kind of like, what carbs should I have? What protein, all this kind of stuff. It just gives you a window, eat between then, you know, don't overcomplicate it. And that's what you do, you know, maybe five to seven days out of the week, for example. Yep. Yep. Exactly. It can make things a lot, a lot more simple. Yeah. Especially for someone who's new to nutrition and, and tracking and that kind of stuff. Um, yep. Something else that's really popular that I feel, I, I think it's like, the most consumed drug, so like caffeine and, and coffee is like the most consumed drug in the world, I think. But you know that kind of is a bit of a loaded way of explaining it. Um, what effect do you think it has on sleep and appetite? You know, like um, for someone trying to like you know improve their health, what effects will it have on those? Yeah, good question. So first off, I think it's important to uh, differentiate the terms caffeine and coffee, just because a lot of people use those terms synonymously, right? Caffeine is a comp one compound that is in coffee, and it's the main compound that makes you feel alert and awake, uh, not tired, uh, sometimes all jazzed, energized, sometimes jittery, anxious, all that stuff is caffeine. Caffeine, it's found in caffeine in, in a coffee, uh, but, but, but um, you know, <clears throat> obviously it's also found in pre-workouts, uh, smaller amounts of teas, smaller amounts of chocolate, stuff like that, supplements. Um, so I'm just going to talk specifically about caffeine. Now you asked about sleep and what was the other thing you asked about? An appetite, effect on appetite. 
Yeah, so, so, so caffeine will definitely, especially depending on when you have it, when you consume it, will negatively affect sleep because it, it literally, um, it, it mechanistically basically prevents tiredness. You know, um, when, when, uh, when, when uh, basically adenosine binds in the brain, makes you feel sleepy, caffeine prevents adenosine from binding in the brain. It, it blocks that receptor. So um, having caffeine somewhat close to your bedtime is not a good idea. Um, and exactly when you should have it, you know, uh, generally the earlier, the better. Uh, people really vary in, in, in how caffeine affects them. One, if you've been having caffeine for a while, you've become tolerant to some of its effects. So it, it might not have the same energetic effect that it once did. Uh, and then genetically, and, and, and just, just, you know, people also differ in how they metabolize caffeine and, and sort of genetic variants there that can affect the extent to which caffeine will impair your sleep. But um, something to know is that caffeine generally has a half-life of six hours. Now, what does that mean? You know, so if you have a cup of coffee, say the cup of coffee is 150 milligrams of caffeine in it, and say you have that cup of coffee at noon, uh, six hours later at 6 p.m., you'll have half of that 150 milligrams still circulating, circling around. So you'll have 75 milligrams of caffeine still in your system, right? Uh, so, so that's important to keep in mind when we, considering when we have our caffeine relative to when we go to bed. So you want to time it earlier. Um, if you are not tolerant to caffeine or you don't typically have large amounts, uh, you, you want, you, you'd want to be careful with having a large dose right away because you're, you're more likely to experience some of the negative effects of, you know, not being able to sleep well, or, you know, anxiety, jitteriness, uh, gastrointestinal effects, if you're not particularly tolerant to it, um, you know, and be mindful of the dose. So um, the FDA has, has generally said that doses of up to 400 milligrams per day are not harmful. Um, I'll tell you, I pretty routinely uh, drink more than that <laughs> every day. And I know a decent amount of people that do. And, and for a lot of folks, um, in a dose of caffeine that is going to enhance your performance oftentimes is more than that. You know, the, it's generally three to six milligrams per kilogram of body weight. You know, if you weigh 200 pounds, that's, that could be more than, than 400 milligrams. So, um, it's kind of a balance there, but, um, you know, it definitely, uh, can affect sleep. And then you also asked about appetite. Caffeine does have the potential to reduce appetite acutely. Um, although that effect, I believe, does fade with time. As you become more tolerant to, to caffeine, that, that effect uh, does fade. And actually, other stimulants also have a, have a similar effect as well. You know, like people who take ADHD medication often experience that, it, that, that it's, you know, it's very stimulatory, but um, it, 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 it reduces their um, their hunger, um, you know, and, and I, I, I mean, I mean, I guess if someone is in like bodybuilding prep or something that then using caffeine for that purpose might be useful, but generally speaking, uh, I wouldn't use caffeine specifically for that purpose of, of reducing appetite, just because you're going to run into tolerance anyway. Um, so you're going to kind of hit a point where it stops working and now you're, you, you're addicted to 500 milligrams with caffeine, whatever it is. Yeah. So, um, yeah, but, but I mean, it's a great supplement. I use it every day. <laughs> yeah. You can get into the trap of like a race to the bottom where you're taking in more caffeine or more coffee. Um, we'll just say coffee and your, your sleep is being impeded more and more. So you have more caffeine or sorry, more coffee, and yeah. then it's just a vicious cycle. So yeah, you definitely want to be aware of your sleep and the effect that, uh, the coffee you're consuming is having on that. Um, so a question I, often wonder in terms of nutrition is which is more important the the quality of the food you eat or the quantity of the food you eat in terms of energy and calories uh for long-term health so like if you were to advise someone who's like 20 years old or someone young a young listener and you were to say this is what you want to focus on for you know maximizing the quality and the duration of your life um and if i was to just try and answer that myself i feel like it might be the wrong question to ask but you're, you're the man in the know. So what are your thoughts on quality of the food you eat versus quantity of calories of the food you consume? Well, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm going to kind of also give again the pop-out answer that it depends because both, both of those are intertwined. Now, as far as quantity, 
if you were talking strictly about fat loss and someone's only goal is fat loss uh, or weight loss, uh, then it would really come down to the quantity of food, the quantity of calories they are eating, and then macronutrients, you know, protein, stuff like that. You know, but um, that would be the driving factor behind weight loss and fat loss. However, uh, you'd want to focus on the types of foods that you're eating to facilitate that, right? Because going to our conversation earlier, uh, if you wanted to do fat loss and be in a calorie deficit and just focus on a quantitative component, but you're eating nothing but Twizzlers and donuts every day, it's going to be pretty damn hard to eat in a calorie deficit eating just Twizzlers and donuts because, you know, it's very hard. Those are such tasty foods and so calorie dense that, that um, you know, you're going to have a hard time. Whereas if you're eating a lot of lean protein, uh, chicken, a lot of veggies, uh, you know, very uh, high volume, low calorie foods like potatoes, um, you know, uh, and moderate amounts of, 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 of you know, um, generally heart healthy fats, you're going to have an easier time sticking to that calorie deficit. Uh, as far as just general health, I mean, they're both intertwined, but, but obviously, I, I mean, the, the quality of the food, the types of foods that you're eating are really going to be what drives everything, right? Um, you know, I mean, we know there, there's, there's a, a ridiculous amount of research showing that a Mediterranean diet, which is basically what we should all think of when we think of a healthy diet, you know, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, um, unsaturated fats, like, you know, moderated, monounsaturated fats, like from olive oils and nuts and avocado and you know, other, other polyunsaturated fats, like from seeds and stuff like that, uh, low amounts of saturated fat, uh, little to no trans fat, um, you know, uh, uh, fish, you know, fatty fish, getting omega-3, stuff like that. Um, those people tend to have the best health outcomes. They tend to live the longest, um, you know, and then with that, if you're eating that type of diet, you're probably not going to end up eating, you might, but you're unlikely to end up eating in a calorie surplus where you would be gaining a bunch of weight, which would, which would increase the risk for health issues. So, um, you know, so, so, so and, and for a general population, you know, counting calories might not be necessary. Counting macros might not be necessary. Just focusing on helpful habits, uh, helpful eating habits, like what I just described, or, or you know, modifying it if someone's vegetarian or they have food allergies or whatever, uh, uh, would probably be the best approach. Yeah. Um, so quality, yeah, it makes a lot more sense i think there'd be a lot more benefits to focusing on the quality of your food um whereas you'd miss out on those benefits just just focusing on the quantity again it kind of be a race to the bottom how little can i consume or you know how tightly can i regulate my calories when you're completely missing all the benefits that come with eating a diet like the mediterranean diet um could you speak a little bit about like the social support so i feel like they're very community orientated in, in the mediterranean and that also has an effect on health and your eating. Um, do you have any thoughts around that and maybe how you kind of, you know, work with clients um, and discuss maybe social support? Yeah, well, just generally speaking, I mean, we know that for not just weight loss, but for weight loss maintenance and just health in general, having that, having the support of those around you is, is extremely important. You know, it's really hard to, to uh, you know, you know, changing your habits, changing your eating habits and, and lifestyle habits to, to, to be more healthful is already pretty difficult. Um, and if the people around you aren't necessarily supportive or, or don't share the same goals as you, um, that can make things even monumentally more difficult. So, um, you know, we know that people who have that accountability from a dietitian or a coach or, you know, have a support group, um, you know, that's one thing about Weight Watchers where, you know, certainly not perfect, uh, but, but they get the, the social support thing down really well uh, as having a group of people who you can kind of rely on when things get tough as, as inevitably do, uh, you know, having other people who are going through a similar experience as you, who, who you can talk to and, and relate to uh, is hugely, hugely important or, or having, ideally having a doctor or practitioner who, who also is, is, is looking out for you, you know, and who you have that relationship with uh, is, is, very very important yeah it's kind of like overlooked but just having support as you go along that journey that's going to be a challenge um with an expert or even just socially from a friend or, or partner is it's invaluable um we'll kind of you know come close to wrapping up here but like just one of the really kind of relevant questions is like protein intake so you had a post about focusing on your total protein intake over the day as opposed to you know protein timing um 
But could you talk about, you know, the timing of protein versus your total daily intake? And then just also kind of like uh, peri-workout nutrition and like, you know, what you'd recommend for someone who, let's just say they're trying to build muscle. What would you recommend? Yeah, so... A lot of us lifters tend to micromanage or maybe not as much these days, but at least there was a time where a lot of us would micromanage our protein timing. We'd be like, oh my God, I have to get my protein shake within a half an hour or my, my workout is wasted or within an hour or whatever it is. And, and now we know that that's just not the case, you know, um, you know, and, and I mean, there's a kernel of truth to that in that, you know, uh, after your workout, generally muscle protein synthesis is, is elevated to a greater extent. Um, and, 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 and in general, having a meal with protein in it at some point after your workout is, is, is probably, probably makes sense. Um, and, you know, because, you know, muscle protein synthesis does sort of have a, a threshold where after you get above that threshold, which is, is um, you, know, you know, from eating protein or leucine specifically, it doesn't increase further. Yeah, it probably makes sense to ideally, you know, eat, eat a pretty decent dose of protein, maybe three different times per day, at least is probably ideal, but it's not nearly as important as the total amount of protein that you're eating every day. Uh, for, for, and then obviously, in, in assuming that you, you're following a well-structured resistance training program, I mean, the, the total amount of protein you're eating over the course of the day is by far more important than the timing of it. Um, but that's just, just a fact. Um, you know, and, and, you know, so, so like I said, beyond that, if you are getting, you know, if you're relatively lean, like, you know, at least like 0 0.7 grams per, 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 per protein per pound, um, you know, or 1.6 grams per kg, um, you know, then, then you're probably in good shape there. Uh, you know, af at some point after your workout within maybe a couple hours, it probably makes sense to have something with protein in it. Um, you know, some people also find that, you know, having some, having some, some something with, with, uh, uh pretty easily digestible carbs, um, so, so a source of carbs, that's like low in, in fiber, rice cakes, white bread, Twizzlers, I don't know, whatever, uh, you know, within a couple hours before your workout might be a good idea, but, um, you know, that's not the most important thing. The, the most important thing still is, is your intake over the course of 24 hours of protein and carbohydrates and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it's not to say that meal timing is useless, uh, but it's certainly not the most important thing. Yeah. In order of priority, it's, it's, it's lower down than what happens over the full day. Exactly. And yeah. And it's kind of actually like a lot more work that, you know, oftentimes is, uh, ineffective when we do micromanage like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then. It just makes me think of how you know useful it is to work with a coach where you can use a lot of trial and error in terms of trying, you know, white bread, brown bread, Twizzlers, whatever you want uh, around your workouts and see how that, you know, impacts your workouts and your progress to uh, really get some like uh, expert feedback on, on the approach you have. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and also it's just, it's, it's so difficult for any of us to be objective with our own nutrition or our own training. Um, even if we are experts, so so it is really helpful to have a, an objective feedback on on you know how to on on what changes to implement, what changes are optimal versus you know what is what what we can let go. Because obviously we can't do everything perfectly optimally. It's just a matter of finding what change what what we should do that that fits us best. If that makes sense. Absolutely, yeah. Like um, you know, even athletes, for example, sometimes you know LeBron James likes to re relax with a glass of wine and. A glass of wine isn't going to make him, uh, you know, perform better, but maybe that's his way of relaxing uh, when done in, in moderation. Um, so speaking of alcohol, and then you have a post as well about cannabis. Um, the question would be, can you still use cannabis or alcohol and still be fit? What, what are your thoughts around, uh, around that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going to get too in depth because we are uh, coming short on time, but yeah. Uh, you absolutely can be, be fit and use either one. Most adults probably do use, not all, but most of them probably use at least one or the other. Um, it just comes back to like we were talking about before about moderation. You know what I mean? I mean, alcohol, I don't have to tell you as if you have too much of it, it can literally kill you and have terrible effects. But there's a lot, I mean, as long as you drink in moderation and if you are looking for fat loss and, and ensure that you are accounting for the calories that are in alcohol, right? Because alcohol is technically a fourth macronutrient. So 
you're tracking macros, you'd probably want to allocate up to calories uh, from the alcohol to either carbs or fats. Uh, so just make sure you're accounting for it and, and be wary of the fact that, of course, as we all know, when you do drink alcohol, your inhibitions are lowered, so it's easier to overeat. Uh, so we just want to be responsible there. And ca cannabis is great in that it does not have any calories in it. Um, obviously, you know, it sort of depends on the individual and depends on, depends on the strain, but um, uh, using cannabis will increase hunger. As, as most of us know, you get the munchies uh, and there's, you know, it'll increase ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone. So, you know, we do want to be mindful of that and use that responsibly if we are going to do so. But um, yeah, there's, there's beyond that, there, there's really no reason why, you know, you don't, some people might find that giving up one or both of those helps them to achieve their goals, but you certainly don't have to. Yeah, they do have utility. And um, if you're responsible with how you use them, you know, and use moderation, you can definitely still make progress. Um, but it's, I think it's kind of, in, in my personal opinion, it's kind of like an extra um, factor to deal with that can kind of like muddy the waters of, you know, trying to get a clear image of like what challenges someone has with their health or, you know, what helps them make progress. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very, very individual specific. But uh, it's good to know that you can still be fit and, and use those. Um, Dan, thanks very much for your time. Do you have anything you want to mention? Um, I would be a big advocate of Examine. It's an amazing, amazing site and resource. So anyone who's listening, check that out. Um, do you have anything coming up or anything you want to mention before we wrap up? Um, no, I think we covered things pretty well. I mean, like I mentioned at the outset, I, um, you know, I am taking new clients in my private practice. I do take uh, many forms of health insurance. Uh, you know, such as like Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Aetna, and Cigna, and, and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, if you're listening and, and, and want to learn more, uh, and, you know, you can uh, send me an email at dan at danfeldmanrd.com. Uh, you can check out my Instagram at powerlifter dietitian, get in touch with me. Um, you know, because you, uh, if you're in the United States, you probably pay a lot for health insurance anyway. Um, might as well uh, get the most out of it. But, uh, you know, other than that, I think we covered things pretty well. It's been a pleasure to be on. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Dan. It was a very interesting and insightful conversation. Um, and thanks for your time. Yeah, likewise.